Hello, it's Andy from the Winning Parenting Podcast. So glad you tuned in today. And I'm excited about today's episode because it's all about social media. Social media and its benefits and challenges are reported on the news frequently. It's a huge topic because it's such a huge part of our lives now. It offers so much information and entertainment at our fingertips, but it can also be a continuous and addictive distraction. Social media companies like Meta and TikTok and Twitter all understand how our brains work and have designed their algorithms to keep us hooked, whether or not it's truly good or bad for us. Keeping customers engaged means more advertising money for them. That's their bottom line. And when Meta recently put out this new application called Threads, many people celebrated saying it was a nicer alternative to Twitter. A hundred million people must have felt that same way because they signed up within a week, which is unbelievable. But my reaction was that it was another opportunity for parents and kids to be distracted if it's not handled properly. So why is this distraction so bad? Uh, my opinion is it's because it keeps us from being present and connecting with others. And the worst thing is it get, gives kids a place to hide virtually and physically. As uh, one of my future guests, Clint Callahan, shared with me, the bullying of kids doesn't stop at the school anymore. It actually happens 24-7. But the news isn't all that bad. Parents who set boundaries and communicate well with their kids help their kids focus better. And being a glasses half full guy, I want to understand and explore this further. What can we as parents do to manage the use of smartphones and social media with our kids? So I'm really pleased to welcome a true expert, Dr. Gwyneth Jackaway, to Winning Parenting. First, let me share a bit about her impressive background. For over 25 years, Dr. Jackaway was a member of the faculty at Fordham University in the Department of Communication and Media Studies. So this is what she did all day. Her research and teaching has long focused on the ways in which technological innovation and communication impacts our relationships with ourselves, each other, and our understanding of the world around us. As a longtime mindfulness meditation practitioner, she's especially interested in the ways in which the rapidly changing digital environment is transforming our experience of being human. After leaving the college classroom to make a bigger difference, Gwyneth earned certifications as a mindfulness meditation instructor and as a digital wellness educator. So um, Gwyneth has a world of knowledge here. Um, our prior discussions were really impactful and interesting to me because she really has perspective over time, as well as what's going on right now and the best ways to address and and uh, and understand what's going on. So thank you for joining us. Thank you, Andy. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for that kind introduction. Excellent. So, okay, so let's dive right into it. So, um, you know, you have perspective because you've been studying this a long time and new media has come into play over time, um, you know, starting from the printing press <laughs> all the way to what we have now. But over the last 25 years, what are some of the biggest ways communication technologies have, have changed us? It's a terrific question. And um, I'm a... I'm a media historian by training. And so um, what I bring to my perspective on what's happening now is um, an understanding about 
some of the repeating patterns and then also how things have changed. So um, <clears throat> you're asking me what's different in the last 25 years. Before I answer that question, I just wanna um, point out something that some parents say, oh, well, there's not that much reason to be worried. After all, our parents or our grandparents just didn't like rock and roll or television or uh, some of the you know video early video games and we all turned out okay. So what's the difference? Isn't this just the latest new thing that people are worried about? And to some degree, those are indeed repeating patterns. People um, are often hesitant about change. And so one form that hesitance takes is that everyone wrings their hands about kids today and how everything's awful. And then life goes on and we integrate the new technology. So I just wanna say that up front. <clears throat> that being said, we are in a very new realm because now we're all interconnected 24 seven, at least theoretically, one could be online and interacting with other humans and receiving input from other people's brains at any moment of any day at any time. <laughs> and that's wonderful. And it's also uh, a bit terrifying. And it's not something that we as a culture or a, a species had any training for planning for we didn't vote on it, it just kind of arrived. <laughs> and a lot of patterns and habits that we we're used to as humans in terms of how families work and what school is like and what politics is like and what many aspects of life, how we were used to having them function, that's transformed. So to repeat your question, you said over the last 25 years, what are some of the most profound ways that communication technologies have altered our relationship with ourselves and others? Well, I'll start with the relationship with others. The relationship with self is perhaps even more complicated. So we didn't used to be connected all the time. <laughs> we didn't have little devices on our bodies or very close to us. Most of us have our phones within, our, or our iPads or our, some kind of device within arm's reach. Or if it's not within arm's reach, we are pretty sure that we know where it is, unless you're like me and you lose your phone 20 times a day. But most people are pretty attached to this device. And that has uh, profound consequences on so many levels. So simply just being available all the time or, <laughs> or creating the illusion that you should be or are or expected to be available all the time, that has a, a powerful impact. Um, it has transformed relationships between parents and kids because now theoretically you can be in touch all day. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Parents um, want their kids to have phones at school. Schools don't want the parents to be calling during the day or texting during the day because it interferes with learning. Um, your question is enormous and we could spend the entire time talking just about that. And I know time is at a premium. So um, I would say the way technology has changed our relationship with others is that we have access to all this outside stimulus. And that's a lot to process. Some of it's good, some of it's bad. We have access to all kinds of information and that's wonderful. And we have access to all kinds of information and sometimes it's not so great. And that's especially true for the young developing brain that may not be ready for some of what they encounter online. How 
these technologies have changed our relationships with ourselves. It's harder to study, partly because that's taking place internally. But for young teens, um, it has created life on the stage all the time. So they have these platforms and devices through which they can connect with each other. And that's an important place for them to do their social interaction and develop and shape their social groupings. But the school day never ends. And whatever drama or bullying or uh, you know complex human relations that take place between young adolescents, that, that's going on all the time. So like, it's like the whole school comes home with them and the parents are trying to interact and they're still in the midst of their social interactions. So that's one of many examples. Um, the other thing that I would say that's fundamentally different about the last 25 years and the technologies that we've integrated into our lives is that these are technologies that are interactive. So you and I grew up in the age of television and radio and you know the earlier what are now called legacy media film and newspapers pre-internet pre media came at you but the media was not tracking your behavior your shopping your voting your fit your favorites and your dislikes they didn't you know they could get some glean some really rough information based on your demographics if they had access to that age income, that kind of stuff, if they could gather that information. But the technologies that we're working with now are designed to track everything that you do online so that the ads can follow you and that you can have a highly personalized media environment. So you and I might both be on threads, but you're seeing very different content than I am. Same with Facebook, same with any of those kind of platforms. Same with YouTube, which often gets forgotten as a social media, but I would say YouTube is the first social medium that small children are on. Um, so you're not gonna see a lot of five and six year olds on Instagram, but they're on YouTube. <laughs> um, and there's a whole YouTube arena for kids, but they can easily see adult content there as well. Okay. Well, um, there's a lot there. And when we <laughs> spoke initially, you had talked about how, um, you know, we had other forms of media that have come in, not just video games, but people had to adapt to the the phone coming into the home for the first time, like a landline, yep. then TV, right? Then then uh, the internet, Radio. then Radio. the internet before yep. even the smartphone. And so everybody's always adapted over time for the most part, but this is kind of a different animal is what you're suggesting. Right. And, and it's it's a different animal because of something. Well, there's a number of technical features and we don't have to get too technical, but there's a term called persuasive design. So, you know, the we have the some of the best and brightest minds of Silicon Valley um, powered by the interests of Wall Street and uh, the skills of Madison Avenue coming at all of our brains, not just young brains. And the persuasive design is a fancy way of saying, um, setting up the technology in a way that it becomes highly compelling. It's very hard to look away. And this is not a conspiracy theory or you know, just uh, negative thinking. 
it's intentional. So the like button is a really great example of persuasive design. So everybody likes to be liked and we like to feel like, oh, somebody likes my picture or my joke or my tweet or whatever it was that you shared. That feels good. That releases various kinds of feel good chemicals in our brain, <laughs> like dopamine, like uh, serotonin. And we want more of that. And they learned that, the Silicon Valley folks learned that from early video games where you get little rewards. And it works in a way that's very similar to the experience of playing a slot machine or going to Atlantic City or Las Vegas and gambling. It's also, there's intermittent rewards. So people don't always like your post. Sometimes they don't, and that's really disappointing. So then you put up a different post and, oh, everybody liked this one. Okay, now I feel better. And that brings you back. And that's about the, the, the brain and how we are wired for social interaction and praise feels good. And so that's an example of persuasive design. Television in the 1970s did not have that. It's a one-way transmission. So it might've been hard to turn off, but not because they were saying, hey, Andy, you look great today. <laughs> right. Right. So so there's, there was, I don't know if you've read it, but there was a, an article posted um, that was presented on NPR about, so your tween wants a smartphone, read this first. Right. And and it talks about how this persuasive design is really not in our kids' best interest. And they recommend delaying, delaying, delaying having the smartphones because the design creates large spikes in dopamine deep inside a child's brain. And the mm -hmm. it's like a magnet. And the, the child's they tell the child's brain that this activity is super critical, way more critical than other activities that trigger smaller spikes spikes in dopamine in their brain such as finishing homework helping to clean up after dinner or even playing outside with friends so um you know so the suggestion is <clears throat> delay what you can um um because you know a lot of parents are worried about safety and being able to get in touch with their kids but for the longest time <clears throat> that was never an issue and frankly, the issues relating to bullying and uh, and predatory action on the phones is way way higher than um, than children who get in trouble because they're getting kidnapped or abducted or anything else. And so, That's right. so um, I happen to be somebody in my parent coaching practice who says, "I'm not going to be the one to tell you whether your kid should be 10 or 12 or 14 or whatever." It's the communication and the boundaries around it and how the phone is used that's more important than the exact age. There's some families and some kids that are ready when they're younger. There's some that are older. So having a hard and fast rule. It's like some families, the minute the kid turns 16, assuming it's legal to drive at 16, they give, you know, they they get them licensed. Some think it's it should be done later and their their reasons around it, right? So what what role does new media play in driving this social change and what what are those positive and negative impacts there was a lot there <laughs> um first i just want to comment i completely agree with you that coming up with a hard and fast age about when devices should be provided um or a specific number of hours per day it, it, it doesn't make sense and it doesn't work because young people are so different and families are so different and parenting dynamics, the various parenting models that people um, 
bring to their role as parents differ significantly. So I just want to reinforce that perspective. I agree. Um, thank so you're you for, thank about, you for chiming in on that. I, I didn't offer that up and, and I'm glad I got your reaction. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, and I have a son, I have a 20 year old son and he certainly is of the age to have been really captured by social media. And he wasn't, uh, he's a, a fascinating, I, I did not put rules on him, but he was just not that drawn to it. And he finally opened an Instagram account a couple of years ago. And what he said on his little uh, bio is, I hear this platform is possible. I'm here to check it out. Like he just wasn't that motivated, but he was busy doing lots of other kinds of things online. So it, it really varies significantly. So now uh, <clears throat> you're asking about positive and negative uh, impacts. Yes. I want to be clear on what you're asking about. Okay. Yep. So there, uh, let's start with the positive because I think that um, digital technologies uh, sometimes get a, a bad rap <laughs> and there's, there's a lot of benefits. Um, so let's just talk about a few for young people. I'm, I'm going to leave adults aside, although that's not because we don't matter. But benefits for young people, they can find each other. And particularly, uh, you know, whether it's weather or where it's too hot to go outside or too cold to go outside or the air is unbreathable or we're having a pandemic or you don't have a car or your kid doesn't have a driver's license yet and they want to connect with their friends. They can connect on gaming platforms. They can connect in other kinds of platforms. And that's wonderful. And it has opened up community and connection and support for young people that really didn't exist before. Um, once upon a time, kids used to go hang out at the mall. <laughs> Maybe you you can remember <laughs> those people don't anymore for a whole bunch of reasons. And the death of the mall is a whole other podcast, I think. Um, so this is a, a space and a place where kids can find each other. They can also learn about all kinds of things. Um, my son is uh, studying science and he started in his interest in science very young. And I used to joke that he went to YouTube University when he was about six because he found his way to all these websites about physics. And now he's majoring in astronomy. <laughs> so, and you know that of course books existed before that but there's a visually compelling dynamic that's available on a YouTube video that's not the same as reading a book about physics. And so it made this content available to a six-year-old and that was great. So there's there's many positives. Um, also self-expression, young people can make videos. They can, you know, on TikTok, which is much maligned, started out as a, a place where people are dancing and singing. And I don't know, I think the world needs a lot more dancing and singing. <laughs> so there's many positives. And what I like to say about the impact of technology in our lives is that these are tools and it's a somewhat controversial perspective of whether or not tools are neutral. Um, some people argue the way they're designed um, encourages them to be used in a particular way. Um, and others say, no, a tool is a tool and it depends on the, the choice and the intent of the, the users. So, I think that's worth keeping in mind. And part of why I mentioned that is to bring things to a practical level, which I know is very important. So um, there are 
negative consequences. And one of the value of having these kind of conversations is to encourage parents to have conversations with their kids about the pros and cons. So let's talk about some of the cons and then we can think about some practical steps that can be taken. Because of the uh, appeal to dopamine, uh, and I'm glad that you mentioned dopamine, it's a neurotransmitter that uh, gets a lot of attention these days. Um, and I can explain it further if you'd like, but dopamine um, helps us stay focused and pursue rewards. That's a good way to describe the function of dopamine. It, sometimes it's thought of as associated with pleasure and rewards, but it's really about the drive, that hunger to keep going. So it keeps people playing video games. It keeps people scrolling for yet another interesting post. It's that kind of urge. And that feels good inside. And we need dopamine to get anything done, but um, it can be addictive. And that's real. And that's about our... Um, brain and the neuroscience of it is um, pretty well established at this point. So handing a child a tool that we know has the potential for addiction is problematic. And so that's is why some guardrails and some limits need to be placed. Those guardrails can be in the form of rules that the parents make and impose on the child. They can, um, take the form of rules that are negotiated collectively in the family. So you can have, have some meetings, all right? We have these devices, they bring a lot of pros to our life, but there's also a downside. Let's think about how to make right. healthy choices. Um, I like that approach, but it has to be age appropriate. That's right. And so it's not gonna be so easy to have that conversation with a five-year-old. Um, by the time they're eight or nine, you can probably at least begin to have that conversation. Whether or not you'll get full buy-in is an interesting question, but I would say that the earlier you begin, the better, because if you wait until they're 15 and then you say, we have to sit down and have a conversation about this, a lot of their habits will have been developed and yeah. they will be um, in You're having patterns. to undo a behavior already. That's right. Now, for those who are hearing this and saying, oh, I never had that conversation and it's too late. No, it's never too late. <laughs> um, but I think that one of the most important things that parents can do is actually talk to their kids about this. Um, the other thing that I want to emphasize about screen time and device use and the role that parents one of the parents play in helping their young people establish healthy habits is the, the modeling that they engage in themselves. So if parents are spending a lot of their own day with their face in their phone and kids are seeing that and kids are experiencing that and maybe as little children, they're going up to their parents, mom, dad, you know, I, I wanna talk to you and, the, and you've got people have their phone in their face or their face in their phone then you're teaching that and kids are always watching. And you know what they say, uh, <laughs> uh, it's not what you say, it's what you do that kids really pick up on. So I would say one of the first ways that you can help your child have healthy ha screen habits is to have them yourself and to make some clear rules about um, what the family does and doesn't do around screens. So, I'm, and I'm happy to give some examples no i mean the, the best example is when we eat dinner the phones are 
away, right? And right. <laughs> and you can't tell your kid. So that's you can't tell your kid, don't be on your phone when you have your phone right next to you, and you're like, oh, someone just texted me, or I have to respond to somebody right away because they need an answer. It's like it, it, nine out of ten times, or ninety-nine out of a hundred times, it can wait, and it should wait. <laughs> That's right. And if the explanation that is given for why one has to be on the phone at dinner is somebody else needs me, it's conveying that our family co-presence is less important than this other person right. who needs me. Now, of course, there may be emergencies, but if that is the baseline that mom or dad are never fully available or never, never fully present because somebody else matters more, that's a very big message to send. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the facts are, are that whether it's dinner time or study time or other times, um, kids are just glued to it. Um, uh, you know, there was a New York Times article recently about social media said to harm teams, but proving it is hard. And it shows that teens who have been surveyed have said that they're on YouTube almost constantly 19% of the time and several times a day, 41% of the time. So that's 60% of the time that they're at least on it several times a day. TikTok, 16% almost constantly, 32% several times a day. So that's 48%. And then Snapchat and Instagram and Facebook, um, still disturbing numbers, but not quite as high as TikTok and YouTube. So Clearly, right. it, it, you know, it, unless you have these agreements with your family up front and you can hold to them, it's kind of hard. And, and, and you know, what's holding these families back and what can they do? So I think, first of all, I think it's important for parents to give themselves some compassion and grace and forgiveness because none of us had training in how to do this. So our parents, we didn't get to watch how our parents regulated our social media use. We are flying blind. It's a whole new kind of struggle. Now, I used to have parent power struggles with my mother about television. <laughs> so that dynamic is not new, but I couldn't carry TV around with me in my pocket. <laughs> right. She could tell me go outside and TV didn't go with me. Right. The TV wasn't in my bedroom. It wasn't in my backpack. Right. <laughs> right now. And it's tricky because we give these technologies to our kids. I mean, unless they're purchasing them themselves, which is a whole other thing. But I would say that for the most part, young people who have technologies have been given those machines. And then after after a while, the, the very people who gave them the machines start scolding them for using them. So that's already a complicated dynamic. Yeah. Right. And most parents don't have the basic uh, education, not through no fault of their own, because this stuff is not covered in our education system at this time. They don't know about the brain science. A couple more things to say about brain science. In addition to knowing about dopamine, most people don't really know about the, the realities of the prefrontal cortex. So I don't wanna to get too scientific, but the prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain. It's in the front of the brain that develops last. And it's the part of the brain that really differentiates us from the other, most of the other creatures on the planet. And for it's the emotional, Frill, It's the emotional regulation as, as opposed to the fight or flight, right? That's right. So the um, 
the very uh, core of the brain, the ancient part of the brain that we do share with other animals. It's the, you know, we startle at noises, we get immediately defensive. It's the part of our nervous system that's wired for self-protection. Whereas the prefrontal cortex, <clears throat> it's about logic and planning and self-control and reason and um, self-discipline. These are all things that we associate with maturity, not with children. And it's not just because it's a skill you have to learn, the brain is really not developed yet. And so when you tell an eight-year-old, just have some self-control and put it down, you're telling them something that they actually don't have the full capacity to do yet. And mm. a startling thing that many people don't know, although the car rental companies have known it for a long time, is that that part of the brain is not done developing until the mid twenties. So. I don't know the last time you tried to rent a car, but you have to be over 25. Um, if you're not, you pay higher rates and some adult has to sign for you. And that's because most young, it's the, the highest accident rate is among people between 16 and 25 because they tend to take more risks and they tend to want to impress their friends on the road or they make bad choices. Or they um, haven't had the experience or seen the movie to be able to say, if I do this, the consequence here is not going to be good. Maybe I shouldn't do that. That's right. So when you ask me about what's holding families back, I think part of the problem is that parents are expecting their kids to have the same kind of self-discipline that you could expect an adult to have. Of course, lots of adults struggle with self-discipline too, um, but at least it's more possible for an adult to make uh, better choices. And that's why young people need some support and some scaffolding around this. So what are some of those behavioral strategies that can be put in place to help mitigate those distractions? Because phones aren't going away, algorithms and you know these social media technology companies are not going to stop trying to attract our attention. What, what, are, what are the recommendations that you make to be able to manage through this better? Um, so first of all, you're absolutely right. Not only are these technologies not going away, more are coming. <laughs> so get ready. We're, we're just getting used to social media, but you know. Yeah, the whole AI coming. revolution is a whole new ball of wax. Uh, don't even get me started. I have a lot to say about that. And then, you know, I think it's just inevitable. Eventually, we're going to have some sort of device on, on our heads. I keep trying to introduce it and people have been resistant, but I, or chips in our neck or who knows what's coming? So first of all, we have to get better at adapting to change and learning to talk about it, which is exactly what we're doing right now. Just having these conversations can open up space for people to say, wow, me too. And that's that happening to you. And people start to realize it's not a breakdown in my family or it's not because my kid has bad self-discipline or I'm failing. I'm, you're up against all of these um, powerful forces. So here are some practical behavioral tips. We're not gonna change those systems, but we can learn how to make better choices in the context of the systems. So you mentioned about no devices at the table. Even if that's, that may not be possible in some families, depending on the kind of job that the parents have, but you can set up at least like on a, a certain day of the week, we're all present or, you know, <clears throat> only a dinner, there's no devices. At least you, you set that up as, as a goal and you create screen-free time as a family value. 
as a priority for the family. In addition to screen-free meals, other kinds of activities. So many families, their, their together time is organized around a screen. They watch TV together or they right. watch movies together or they game together. And there's many benefits to that because you can share your fandom and have fun um, with the media form. So I think that's very positive. However, it's also important for the family members to have experience of doing things that are not mediated. So take walks or go to a place and you know, the parents also have to participate in this, all phones away. So people have some practice being together without co-viewing or co-mediating. Well, it's hard to, so, it's, it, you may have fun when you're doing some of these media games or watching a movie together or whatever, mm -hmm. but you're not connecting. You're, you That's know, right. and you're not being curious and understanding and creating trust. You know, when somebody has something positive to share, has an issue, you know, when you're taking a walk, you're out in nature, you're more relaxed, you can talk to somebody and maybe open up a little bit or, you know, I tell parents, you know, do something with your child that they enjoy, that's right. not media related, that where, where you can connect in that way. It's not where the parent chooses because it's what they like to do. It should be what the kid likes to do. And if the kid's having fun and the kid's comfortable, it's a way to connect and have conversation together while you're doing that activity. That's right. So of course, communication is key and you need to create some space for communication. And one of the things that um, some scholars worry about is that for kids who are developing their social emotional lives with other people, um, with their peers and friends. And it's always through a screen that they, some of them feel uncomfortable just looking straight at another person's face. And so you've probably seen these, I think rather disturbing images of teenagers sitting in a row together all on their phones. And they're sort of, to use a term from MIT professor, Sherry Turkle, they're alone together. They're, yes. they're all they're physically next to each other, but they're all on their screens and they may, in fact, be texting each other. Right next to each other. Right. So clearly, for many important reasons in life, you need to be able to look a person in the eye and, and take turns having conversation and learn to listen and learn to share. And that all needs practice. Um, so in addition to having some screen free time as a family and and to highlight it right to say it out loud now we're going to have time without screens that doesn't demonize the screens it says these are powerful tools and they have a place but not everywhere we go <laughs> right <clears throat> so then you, another... you shared you shared the term balance and i think that's a, a good way to look at it right so you know some people react to the problems of screen time by saying, all right, this is going to be a, a screen-free household and we're not going to use these devices at all. And we're going to not have television or we're not going to have any of these things. You can do that. It takes a lot of uh, strictness, I would say, because the young people start to figure out everybody else has this stuff. Why can't we have it? So you would have to really set up a, a tight set of rules, but eventually they're going to get access to these machines. And then that, you know, the, Research shows that they tend to go in the other direction. Once they have that freedom, they don't have any sense of how to keep things in balance. So I think it's much healthier to introduce the technologies early and say that this is a special thing and we get to do it at a certain time of day. 
but then that's it. And then we do other things. And so then it can be seen as a reward for a good behavior or for desired behavior, but it's also to recognize that there are other important things like getting enough sleep. So one of the key rules, and it's something that I struggle with imposing on myself, no phones in the bedroom. There's just no reason for it to be in there. <laughs> However, many people sleep with their phone next to their pillow. <laughs> and if the notifications are not turned off, they're hearing the notifications coming in. So right. teens are often texting each other late into the night. And so your brain if, can't and your brain can't slow down because the dopamine keeps happening. So you, that's right. they don't get so they don't get enough sleep or proper. They don't sleep. get it. That's right. And teens especially need a great deal of sleep. Anyone who has parented a teenager knows that suddenly they're just sleeping all the time. It's because they're they're growing and they're transforming their bodies and they need more sleep. So um, it's really key for them, for all of us, ideally, to get off our screens at least a half an hour before you're planning on going to bed. Because whatever input is coming into your brain, it's, you know, you're thinking about all those things, whether it's good news or bad news or a conversation that might upset you. And then it takes a while for the brain to settle down. Right. So it's important to disengage from screens. Um, and there are various ways to do that. But, you know, having your charging station outside the bedroom is one of the best ways. Just plug it in, you know, in the kitchen or wherever, and then you're not available anymore. Right. Well, thank you for all your wisdom today. I wanted to um, um, give you a few minutes to talk about your practice and what you're doing now specifically and about carrots and cake. Great. Thank you for asking. So um, as you mentioned, I'm certified in something called digital wellness and mindfulness meditation uh, training. And those two, those things really go together. So digital wellness is an emerging field an emerging discipline um, designed to help people of all ages learn how to make healthy, balanced choices in their relationship with technology. It's not anti-technology, but um, it's placing the uh, the idea of our technology use in the larger context of wellness. So we know we need enough exercise, we need the right kind of food, we need rest, and we want to use our technologies in a way that supports our overall well-being. And so there's various arenas from our relationships to each, with each other, our bodies, our health, sitting too long is a problem, staring at screens for too long is a problem, um, impacts our relationships. You know, we want to um, have wellness in our technical lives and our tech life lives. And um, I'm a longtime mindfulness meditation practitioner, and I got the training in how to teach other people about it because I believe that one of the best ways to bring balance and healthy choices to our tech use is to be mindful of it. So mindfulness is a meditation technique that brings your awareness to your thoughts. So you start to have a meta awareness of, oh, wow, I'm anxious, or oh, I'm really angry, or it's a part of you that steps back and you observe what is. So bringing mindfulness to our technology use might mean instead of just mindlessly picking up the phone without even thinking about why you're doing it, to stop and say, why is this in my hand right now? What am I looking for? What am I seeking? Right. So at least it's not even from a judgmental place. It's just becoming aware because a lot of our um, tech use is very mindless. And the aim is to become intentional about our attention. So our attention is the thing that all of the advertisers are competing for. And it's one of the most valuable things in our 
economy, human attention, because there's still only 24 hours in a day, no matter how many channels are coming at us. And our attention span is key to getting anything done and pursuing our dreams and our passions and being present for each other. So our attention is kind of superpower. And I think people need some practice in developing that. So where Carrots and Cake comes in, so I do some educational consulting with Carrots and Cake, which is a, a screen time app, screen time control app for parents to help with younger children. And so as I was mentioning, I think it's ideal if possible to help uh, to start early with children and to help them develop an awareness of the importance of some limits on this. And it's easier to do this when they're five or six. So uh, <clears throat> Carrots and Cake is an app that's designed for kids between ages three and 10. And it's something that you download on your onto your phone or your iPad and you set it up ahead of time uh, to help control, place limits and balance on what the kids have access to online and how much time they're spending doing various things. And one of the benefits of that is that it outsources some of the uh, power struggle <laughs> conversations to the device. So once the kids have used their allotted time, it shuts off, you, they can't continue on and they learn that things come to an end. Now, uh, the, the name Carrots and Cake is a reference to something that we, many of us heard when we were kids growing up, right? Finish your vegetables before you get your dessert. So there, uh, Carrots and Cake is set up to allow the kids access to two different kinds of content, digital content, one that's in the category of carrots, which is educational learning apps. And then there's the cake, which this is where the child gets to have some buy-in um, and you can work together with them. You explain to them, if you do some learning, then you get to have some play time. So the learning might be a Sesame Street learning game or something on Duolingo or Khan Academy or various kinds of things that will help them um, engage in cognitive effort that takes some concentration that's not necessarily really high dopamine with bells and whistles and games. It's a little more focused, which is a skill they need for school and life. And then once they've completed that, then they get however much time the parent sets up to be on YouTube or Roblox or Minecraft or whatever else has been chosen. So that's how Carrots and Cake works. And I think it's terrific for a couple of different reasons. It's not anti-tech. It's very much designed for busy parents who want to be able to hand their pad or device to the child so they can make dinner or they can be on the phone or they can have a Zoom meeting and they don't have to worry that their child is gonna be wandering around the internet in some area where they don't want them. You can, uh, part of what Carrots and Cake does is it blocks uh, the children's access to anything online you don't want them to see. So if you don't want them going online, they can't go online um, or whatever it is that you set up. And then you don't have to feel worried and guilty. And then you also, you know that the, the time will come to an end and then they'll need to put the device down and you don't have to worry you're gonna have a big power struggle with them at the other end. And then by the time they're teens, they will have had a few years of experience of modulating their device use and learning the benefits of coming off of it, doing something else. So start them young. Start them young. So um, yeah. one thing that I did want to mention for your uh, audience is that if they're interested, there's a promo code uh, and they can get six months free on the Carrots and Cake app. 
So the promo code is winning, um, all capital letters, winning to go with your podcast. And um, it's at um, carrotsandcake.com, all one word, carrots and cake. And they can learn more about the, um, the platform there. And there's also lots of articles and webinars so they can learn more about how it works. Sounds great. Um, as we discussed, I'm familiar and, and friendly with one of the executives who works at Bark, which is based here in Atlanta, and they're they're really good having a monitoring device for focus more on the teen community. Um, but if you're going to start them early, carrots and cake certainly sounds like a a, a, a great app, and and you know giving more tools for parents above and beyond the structure of the family and what's agreed to um, is meaningful and helpful. So I'm glad that you're part of that. Um, how how can people get a hold of you directly if they're interested in your philosophies or your, your, your studies and your coaching? Um, well, I'm just in the process of building my new website. So first I'll just give you my email address. Um, so Gwyneth Jackaway, my full name, um, I assume you'll have the spelling of that. So I Gwyneth Jackaway, PhD um, at Gmail. And then my website will be the same, Gwyneth Jackaway, PhD.com. And that should be up in the next couple of days. I, I had an old one. It's time for a new one. So. Okay. Well, thanks for your time. Thanks for expertise. Thanks for helping be a light to help guide us through this um, uh, media change and this storm that's been coming through that has affected our kids and our families so much. And we just have to do our best to help navigate it, um, you know, through the positives and the negatives for sure. And, and I appreciate all your insight, your expertise. Um, I've studied it. I've experienced the wrath and the, the, the joys of it at the same time. And just having somebody who looks at this and breathes this and understands this every day and is able to share that with us was really special. So thank you so much. It's my pleasure. And thank you for the important work that you're doing with, with your podcast as well. Thank you. Hi, thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you're enjoying winning parenting and it's not only enjoyable, but inspirational and educational for you. If you like this podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you were able to post a positive review on whatever podcast app you use that enables us to reach more listeners who can benefit and enjoy. Also, if you have people you think would benefit from it, I'd really appreciate it, and I know they would if you would share it with them. If you have any topics that are of interest to you, feel free to email me at andy at parentsjourneycoaching.net. Similarly, if you have an interest in any of my parent coaching services, feel free, again, at andy at parentsjourneycoaching.net. Thank you.